Hello and welcome to Copwatch 2022, reviving our series of mini-podcasts initiated during the Glasgow COP26 meetings last year and marking the first week of negotiations at the COP27 event at Sharm el-Sheikh. I've not been in Egypt, but coming up shortly is insight from Reckitt's Global Head of Sustainability, David Croft, who has been attending COP. We'll hear from him in Sharm el-Sheikh shortly. So, while there were certainly the standard roster of rousing speeches from the assembled world leaders, perhaps the standout outcome from the first week of COP27 was the lack of any real progress on the key challenges. This contrasts with COP26, where the opening week featured an impressive series of really impactful announcements on funding pledges and new initiatives. US President Joe Biden did drop in on his way to meet the Chinese President in Bali and said a lot of the right things, including making an impressive commitment on methane reduction, one of the big themes from COP26. However, the US government remains committed to further gas projects and environmental groups have continued to call for Biden to use his presidential powers to properly shift the US away from fossil fuel use. The methane standards he announced will help cut US methane emissions by 87% by 2030, according to the US Environmental Protection Agency. What Biden did not address, however, was the issue of loss and damage, payments by wealthy countries to poorer nations suffering the most from the impacts of climate change, which has become a high priority following more than 130 developing economy nations insisting that it was added to the conference agenda for the first time. While the EU, US and others have stated an openness to discussing loss and damage, a legally binding framework tying developing nations to compensation or liability seems a very remote prospect. US climate envoy John Kerry, the former Secretary of State, went as far as declaring that such an agreement is just not happening. Other big areas where a lot of rapid progress is going to be necessary include agreement on further emissions reductions targets and in particular phasing down use of fossil fuels. A point of contention here is whether to push harder on coal or to focus on reduction for all fossil fuels. Anyway, to find out more about what's making the running at the COP meetings, I caught up with Reckitt's Global Head of Sustainability, David Croft, early on Monday the 14th while he was in Sharm el-Sheikh. How has your COP27 experience been so far? It's been good. It's been incredibly busy. I came halfway through last week. We've been spending a lot of time on the climate change and health agenda, which is core to Reckitt's business agenda, of course. And what I'm seeing is a lot of momentum, a lot of shared conversation. And hopefully there is, through that, support for the negotiations from non-state actors, private sector, civil society, to help those negotiations go well and, and give the world the right outcome. How's it compared then with other COP meetings you've been at? There's not as many people here as were at Glasgow. You know, there's a number of reasons for that, partly the location, partly the positioning of the agenda. From a personal point of view, I'm seeing the health agenda and therefore the impact of climate change on people as well as the planet much more visible in the discussion. And that, for me, is critical. It's critical at, at a number of levels. One, it's critical because that's where Reckitt as a company centres our business agenda. But also, I think it's critical, more importantly, to help people internalise the effects of climate change and then start to do more to prevent it happening. That's really, really important. You know, all too often, even in the UK after the intensely hot summer, the sense of climate change impact in some of the northern hemisphere, the temperate zones, is still not as tangible as we need it to be in order to create those changes and stronger support. I'm fortunate. I travel to other parts of the world. I see the immediate impacts of climate change on people's day-to-day -day lives. Water stress, um, pressure from, in the case of health, different disease vectors coming through. 
the very harsh impacts of acute weather patterns, floods, droughts, fires. We've been lucky in the UK that we haven't seen too much of those, even though 40 degrees over the summer was absolutely new. But we've still got to internalise those conversations even more in order to make action rapid, meaningful action, as rapid as we possibly can. What are you in Sharm el-Sheikh to do specifically? I was particularly here to talk about the impact of climate change on health and how it is affecting people's day-to-day lives and how we're seeing that transpire through health impacts all over the world. Sometimes that is about different vectors of disease. Sometimes it's about the rise of insect-borne vectors. We were hosting a discussion about malaria and different malarial mosquitoes, finding new geographies and impacting us there. We've talked about the impact of increased temperatures, particularly nighttime temperatures, and the impact that has on people's health, uh, particularly vulnerable members of the community, the elderly, the youngest. What we're seeing is the health impacts of climate change gathering momentum everywhere in the world. We've been really keen to see that health impact being built into climate change negotiations and to make certain that all public health agendas have a climate change element within them to recognise the increased pressure on health services that climate change is bringing, and in doing so, to drive more momentum to combat climate change, to internalise it in the way we all think about activity. The planet is changing, and we need our other systems of support for people on that planet to also change and evolve if we're going to adapt and prevent climate change impact. It does feel that linking aspects of like public health to climate change is how we can really develop that sense of urgency that's required. So, David, what stood out for you from the first week? We're talking on the morning of Monday, the 14th of November. Big news over the weekend really has been the thinking that 1.5 Celsius might actually be taken off the agenda. Are you seeing that or what else has stood out for you from the first week? I've seen some of that. I've seen people talking about how hard it is to stay with 1.5, but I think it's really critical that we do. And we and other companies, along with other senior respected people like Mary Robinson, are very supportive of that drive to keep 1.5 alive. I was speaking with the UK delegation on that on Friday evening, and we very much see the importance of that message that began at Glasgow of keeping 1.5 alive to continue through this COP and for the future. It's critical to going forward. I've also seen very positively, to build on your earlier point, Ian, the connection between different agendas. I think it's really important that we don't operate in silo solutions. Climate change, biodiversity, health, social impact of climate change, all being linked together more effectively this year. Because I think if we have silo solutions, then we don't get optimum answers. And actually, we almost create barriers in some of the ways that we work. So that's been a a better joined up discussion around that. A lot has been said about nature-based solutions. I've been speaking with people on preventing deforestation, but also reforestation. A great conversation with the Bezos Earth Fund. I sat next to a Ugandan lady who was a tree farmer, replanting and helping to reforest areas of Africa, which benefits water security, it benefits climate change, nature-based solutions, and it benefits socioeconomic impacts. So joined up solutions has come to the fore. From a personal point of view, we're now at Reckitt, part of the TNFD, Nature-Related Financial Risk Disclosure Group Task Force, to try and help move that discussion forward. And that very much has that climate change, nature-based solutions, biodiversity, and social value of ecosystems at its heart. 
So those joined up solutions has been the other theme, I would say. And that gives me cause for optimism, I think. We have more chance of success with better joined up solutions, but we must not lose track of the need to keep 1.5 alive. There was quite a lot about adaptation last week, and there was the Sharm el-Sheikh adaptation agenda, which outlined 30 adaptation outcomes for resilience. What's the role of business in this whole adaptation discussion? Business is an incredibly creative innovator, and adaptation that both builds, that is around mitigation, mitigating the risk, but also creating opportunities to drive adaptation for long-term resilience is something at the heart of what business has always done. And now building this climate change conversation, the biodiversity conversation to that, is just another facet of how business can work. I think what we'll see increasingly is creative approaches to adaptation from business not just in and of themselves, but also creating the the collaborations, creating the convening power throughout a value chain with peers, with both governments and civil society actors to try and draw collective action together. Those 30 outcomes were reasonably positive, but they are a starting point. We will see more of that coming together. And I think business has a role to play in convening and driving that agenda going forward in terms of building more adaptation opportunities to tackle the issues that we're seeing here this week. There's been quite a lot of talk over the past few days about some people who aren't there. Greta Thunberg being an example of a high-profile attendee of earlier COPs, particularly in Glasgow last year. She's been widely quoted as saying that COP really is all about greenwashing more than anything else. What do you think that future COPs need to do to get away from such accusations of greenwashing? I think it's important that we have inclusive COP negotiations and discussions. And what I've seen here that's been reassuring is a very strong presence from African nations. It is a much more African COP than I've seen in the past, and that's great to see because the impacts of climate change throughout Africa are perhaps more visible than than in many other parts of the world. It's important also to have those mixed voices from civil society, from business, and from governments as part of this to help support the mandate for activity, to strengthen the opportunity of negotiations and give support to those negotiations. But at the same time, I think it's important that those conversations that happen around the negotiations do not overtake or overshadow the critical work that government have to deliver on in these negotiations and how that policy framing and commitments at governmental level can move forward. We're here to support, not overshadow. I think to help that happen, it's not about more commitments. We don't need more commitments. We need more action. And I think we need more transparency around the impact that those actions are having and progress on those actions. And that goes for both state actors and non-state actors, businesses. Let's talk more about the impact that programmes are having and the progress that people are making rather than commitments. We need to see more progress. And that, for me, would be a really important part of how future contributions beyond the government negotiations can then showcase what is working well and what needs to work better. It shouldn't be about greenwash. It should be about transparency on impact that people's different activities are then having and the contribution it can make so that we can then join up those activities for greater impact. The opportunity, I think, at COP is for strengthening collaboration to create greater impact at scale. And that's driven best when we can show the impact transparently that these actions are having and also be honest about where it's not working as well as it needs to and then take action to prevent that and and, and get things moving more effectively. 
Are those the sort of reasons that are giving you some sense of optimism? Yes. I mean, there are lots of challenges around, lots of challenges, not least things like the energy market situation and how volatility there and supply challenges are causing people to think about ongoing use of fossil fuels. At the same time, the flip side of that same coin is there is great opportunity for green energy that comes through that to support continuity of supply. From a personal point of view, what I'm optimistic is about is the fact that the health agenda is a more integral part of the climate change agenda, and that drives change because it personalizes it. I'm looking forward already to how that conversation will grow towards the UAE and COP28 next year. But we have a long way to go before then. We've got to drive decarbonisation. We've got to continue to prevent deforestation. We've got to add nature-based solutions into the mix. And we've got to tackle and mitigate the health impacts of climate change that we're starting to see in different parts of the world already. So lots to do, but I think we have cause for optimism. But critical within that is to keep 1.5 alive. That, for me, is a fundamental essential of keeping the negotiations going forward and keeping commitment driven to the strongest degree. Let's hope that remains the case, David. Enjoy your remaining time at Sharm el-Sheikh. But thank you very much indeed for your insights today. Pleasure. Good to speak to you, Ian. And thanks again to David for his time. We'll have further reflection on how events at COP27 unfold over the rest of the conference. And of course, the Innovation Forum weekly podcast will be back on Friday. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.